In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today let the word go forth fool me once are you fired up i'm not a crook are you ready to go shame on shame on you it's abe lincoln's top hat hosted by ben kissel boom you can't get fooled again all right welcome to the show everyone i am ben kissel as always i'm staring at the you know what i'm gonna say marcus we're handsome Handsome Marcus Parks. <laughs> oh, weird. I like weird handsome. You know, I'm looking at pictures of Anthony Weiner as he takes pictures of his uh, of his oh. Weiner. Uh, but you can also see his face. And uh, I'm going to say you're 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 more handsome than Weiner. I hope so. That guy look, he's got a dick nose. He does have a dick nose. <laughs> and he's got a massive hog, apparently. <laughs> Good God. Um, so on today's episode, we got an interview coming up with Dr. Robert Fetrakis. Uh, it's really uh, it's interesting. Uh, this was the guy that we we interviewed previously and. Uh, we lost the recordings by an act of God, but it was an act of God for a good uh, reason because I think the uh, the second interview was even better. I think so too. The only thing we weren't able to get to was when he discussed the voting machines that we currently have uh, that we're using in this country, um, how we started using those in foreign nations in order to uh, in, in order to alter their elections to then get somebody in power that we deemed more appropriate to the United States' interests. Yeah, he he mentioned it just a little bit. Was a bloodless coup. Uh, yes. And it's very interesting because you do have to ask yourself, yeah. is it better? But that's the other thing mm-hmm. is that, you know, you also have to ask yourself, is it any of our fucking business in the first place? Exactly. So yeah. that's the, really the only thing we didn't quite get into on this uh, on this last interview with him. Uh, well, hopefully not our last, but on the uh, on the uh, on the most recent interview uh, with the good doctor. So um, let's see here. But Marcus and I, we've had a lot of crazy things happening. We were talking before the show. I mentioned my exercise bike, but did I mention I also ordered a couple of dumbbells? Ooh, that's very fancy. And they're 35 pounds. Ooh, intense. Oh, yeah. And I was curling them (laughs) yesterday. I was sweating, and I was looking in the mirror, but it's not like American Psycho. It's like American Fatto, and it's really (laughs) uh, disgusting and sad still. But I'm working on it. I'm going to change my whole body, Marcus. You do it, man. You you do you. I have faith in you. Thanks, buddy. Um, So Huma Abedin, of course, uh, Hillary Clinton's right-hand gal. She's been with her for... uh, I think since 2008. No, long before that, long she before was a, that. she was an intern at oh, the yeah. White House during the Clinton presidency. I think she's been with Hillary Clinton in one form or another since Huma was 19. Wow. Um, you could almost argue she was groomed. <laughs> but she officially uh, she officially split with Anthony Weider because he got a new he has a new sexed out and he was sexting with this chick who's a Trump supporter. Yeah. I don't 
yeah. even know why he was thinking that was a good idea. I don't think he knew. I, I think he was in her profile. Uh, he knew. I mean, he's uh, just the thing with Wiener and Marcus. You know a lot about psychology, certainly more than I do. I mean, this is a pathological problem, oh, right? With that, this is a compulsion. People often talk about, and a lot of politicians say, uh, you know, I have a sex addiction. You know, uh, they 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 pull the uh, Duchovny card uh-huh. uh, that they have a sex addiction, but I actually think it might be true in Anthony Weiner's case. And the sad thing is, the sex scandals that this poor politician, not poor politician, but uh, now we can say that because he's officially never going to hold office again. I'm going to say poor politician. No, uh, he was never going to hold office again after his failed May. After Sydney Leathers, after you, don't, si- it was you tough. don't come back from Sydney Leathers. You can come back from Sydney Leathers. <laughs> I don't think you come back from the recent pictures because, of course, his child is in bed with him, and yeah. that's a whole nother story. But you do get the feeling um, that the man ruined his entire life, and he it, it's it's something completely outside of his control it's not any and he didn't really ruin his entire life because of i mean it's for a boner that's it's all it is. It's like he ruined his life because yeah. he's not even getting laid. That's what I wanted to say, yeah. <laughs> this is just, so it's, sad. It's just a boner, and that's it, and which he, is so – that's so. It, that's why it's a compulsion. He has yeah. some sort of uh, – something popped into his head when he was de- when he was developing sexually, and he wasn't able but to get But the internet wasn't it. even ex- in existence yet. I mean, what it, was he doing, sending Polaroids in the mail like a real creeper? I don't know. It seems like it's some sort of exhibition. Uh, it seems like it's or it's possible that he really wants to cheat on Huma, but this is the closest that he could come that he's rationalized it in his yeah. mind somehow that if he just sends dick pics and jerks off over the responses, then oh that's good God. enough. But man, Huma, you can tell like it, it's like one more time. One more time. You get three chances. Well, I or think two they, chances. Third time you're out yeah, of here. The rumors are they had sort of they had a. Not officially split, but, you know, you can imagine the marriage. Judging by the Wiener documentary alone, uh-huh. wasn't exactly going amazingly. Well, she spent a lot of, she's been spending a lot of time on the road. That's right. She yeah. has been extremely busy. And, of course, Donald Trump, um, never the one not to weigh in, tried to switch this and, and pivot this to uh, Hillary's judgment and her lack of judgment right. and how Anthony Weiner is a security risk. Uh, but quite frankly, I mean... A security risk? Yes, because he has... <laughs> you know, he's so close with Uma, and then he has... Uh, you know, he might be looking over her shoulder while she's sending random documents to Hillary. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a stretch. I think that... Uh, I think that Mr. Weiner is a little bit too preoccupied with his own Twitter uh, DMs and Facebook DMs uh, to be concerned about foreign affairs. Well, there was a, a recently a higher up five star general who was fired uh, because he was a swinger. Uh, because what? yeah, because he was Hoover a was a swinger. They're all swingers. <laughs> he was a swinger and he was involved uh, in uh, a fair amount of relationships. And what the uh, what the security agencies sure. say is. Is that it's not necessarily a problem with the lifestyle; it's a problem with the possibility of blackmail. Yes, and of course, that's what happened with David Petraeus as well. Exactly. Uh, the woman I've, I'm forgetting the name of the woman that was writing the tell-all book about him. I mean, she just really played perfectly into the man's ego, and his wife wasn't uh, exactly, um, you know, she didn't. Ex- she was not a. She was an. Elder, she was a beautiful woman. She was. She, they just. They seemed to have lost uh, the. Yeah, the they uh, lost the spark. that love and feeling. Yeah, yeah. they seem to have lost the love and feeling. And she played perfectly perfectly into uh you know supporting his uh male ego mm-hmm. but that was the major concern of why he got uh you know let go and his career was over was based on security concerns not the affair itself yeah but i mean and i get what he's kind of reaching for but 
Wiener ain't got nothing. Wiener really, <laughs> I don't know. I think that he Donald Trump is just thrilled. Yeah, oh, God. He's thrilled he's that thrilled. somebody else did something dumber than he does on Twitter. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know? And I think Huma had no choice but to leave him as well because, oh, yeah. you know, that's also, you know, a lot of people I mean, hit uh, Hillary for not leaving Bill Clinton after the Monica Lewinsky scandal. A lot yeah. of people hit her on that. Yep. Uh, and if you've got the high, her highest aide uh, that is also in, a re- she's also forgiving him uh, and staying with him, you can't have that. You just you know, can't. And it's funny, we, we did, uh, there's been some people on the Facebook group upset with us, uh, d- you know, discussing Hillary. I want to clarify. They ain't upset with me. They were upset with you because you called her old. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and she is going- an old woman. Yeah, so I just want to clarify. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. But you look at what happened with Bob Dole. You look, it was a massive th- issue for John McCain. It was a huge issue. If you go look back at the Ronald Reagan uh, Mondale election in 84, that was Mondale's major attack against Ronald Reagan was his age. And, of course, then Ronald Reagan of course, then Ronald Reagan came back with a quote, I'm not going to make age an issue in this election. I'm not going to exploit the inexperience and youth of my you know, opponent. And everyone laughed, including Walter Mondale. And to some degree, the election was over at that moment. So, But to your point, yes, Donald Trump is extremely old, 70 years old. Hillary is 68. They're all old. <laughs> everyone is. Um, yeah, so, they're but all, in no Bernie, way, Bernie was what, 72? I think 70, maybe even 74. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was extremely old i mean the um the republicans that was actually a pretty young group besides i mean donald trump was the oldest one yeah uh, ted cruz is pretty young jeb yeah, bush 50s. you know all these guys are, a lot of these guys are 60s. in their 50s is not if not their older 60s i mean is ted cruz even in his 50s oh yeah yeah um and that was he's the looking thing. really good for being in his 50s ted cruz is looking <laughs> really good smooth skin wise what is he wrong with he you he doesn't have a lot of wrinkles he's you've got- changed <laughs> yeah pig goblins don't age badly what? You never seen a They guy? were born old. <laughs> They've got old faces but young skin. You ever seen You ever seen a pig with wrinkles? No, I've never seen a pig with wrinkles. Good Okay, <laughs> you got me. Good God! But anyway, just to clarify, in no in no point do we uh, you know want to convey sexism no, uh, regarding the age of Hillary Clinton. It's just these are these are issues that happen in political uh, in 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 the uh, presidential elections, and age is one that matters. Of course, it mattered much more with John McCain because uh, we've been proven wrong. But many people he thought he might not be around much longer, and had he died, uh, if he had won, and had he died in office, Sarah. Palin would have been president, and I think that magnified his age because there is no denying uh, she was unfit uh, to serve as the president, as we learned, because, of course, she resigned as governor of Alaska pretty much immediately to go become a reality star. Yeah. So you could assume that if uh, she was president, she wouldn't exactly be focused on the job, which is also a concern about Mr. Donald Trump himself. Yeah, it absolutely is, because you've got Mike Pence on the dock. Oh, God, we do not want a President Pence. No, we do not. No, And, no. you know, actually somebody on the Facebook page brought up a very good point. Uh, I cannot remember her name exactly, but it was an extremely good point uh, mm-hmm. where she said that um, Donald Trump will be very easily impeachable. Extremely easy. Sure. It, it would be extremely easy to uh, impeach Trump. And, you know, this is also that's also something mm-hmm. that I said uh, a bunch, you know, months ago. It's like, don't worry about Trump. He'll probably be impeached. There's no worries here. Uh, but the problem. The problem is is that he chose almost an even bigger monster than himself for his vice president. 
Uh, because yeah, that's Mike, true. Mike Pence, uh, because Mike, uh, Donald Trump just does what he does. Like, he's just, he's who he is. He's rash. He's uh, a dickhead, but he just does what he does. Mike Pence has an agenda yes. and he has a very uh, sinister Agenda. And we've got a lot of people from Indiana who listen, and they are not uh, exactly thrilled with his governorship no. uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Of course, speaking of impeachment, the last president that was impeached uh, was a Clinton. So yeah. and there's certainly a lot of reasons that Hillary could possibly become impeached as well. But if she would, uh, President Tim Kaine wouldn't be nearly as bad as a President Mike Pence. Yeah. And remember, I mean, don't forget this. The next president's appointing a Supreme Court justice. Possibly four. Yeah, possibly possi- four. Possibly four. Yeah, Can you imagine what would happen if Mike Pence appointed four Supreme Court justices? Oh my goodness! I mean, yeah. At this point, uh, let's see. So we ob- we obviously have the open seat with Scalia. I don't know why they won't put uh, Merrick Garland through. I think that they really should because Merrick is a relatively rational person. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is on her way out. I believe uh, um, Clarence Thomas is on his way out. No, Clarence is going to stick around. You he's not so? that old. He just started talking. Okay, so you got to <laughs> give the guy a little bit of time here. No, he's not that old. Um, but uh, Souter, Breyer, they're, they're, uh, all three of those people are possibly gone. Souter, Breyer, and, uh, and, and Ginsburg. So obviously, and of course Kennedy, who is really a vital por- uh, part of the Supreme Court because he is the swing vote. He is mm-hmm. oftentimes the most important uh, person to vote in the Supreme Court. You could argue he's the most important Supreme Court justice, uh, even more so than, of course, Chief Justice Roberts. Yeah. So that is one of the uh, important things uh, in the upcoming election. But unfortunately, as we'll talk about now with the good doctor, uh, Robert uh, Fitrakis, uh, it's the illusion of choice. Uh, both of these uh, parties are, are bought and sold. And, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about voter theft and uh, election theft. Rather, it's slightly different than voter fraud. And um, I think it's a fascinating interview. Yeah, I think it's, so, it's a good too. One. Yeah, yeah. Very much enjoyed it. Yes. Um, so, indeed. Enjoy the interview and uh, we'll talk to you afterwards. All right. All right, everyone. Welcome to the show. I am Ben Kissel. That's Marcus Parks. Hello. Uh, We're honored to have Dr. Robert Fitrakis. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Glad to be here. All right. Uh, The the good doctor is a a political science professor. He uh, basically wrote the book on vote flipping, uh, which is a little bit different than uh, and and election fraud, which is a little bit different than voter fraud uh, in that it's a more systemic problem and it's a top down issue. Um, So let's just talk a little bit about that. Um, So. You've done a lot of extensive research, uh, you know, when it comes to the two-party system and uh, and how they've sort of, you know, they've, they've co-opted the power and they're keeping third parties um, out of the political game. So what is one of the what is one thing that both parties have to gain from election theft? Well, power, uh, obviously, the control uh, at the the highest levels of the most powerful nation on the earth and the. Uh, if we're to believe the New York Times, the most powerful nation since uh, Rome in 117 A.D. So tremendous amounts of power. And with that power, of course, uh, access to resources. Uh, I think the Clintons bear that out with their foundation, uh, with their enormous power, uh, yeah. with Bill having served as president, come uh, untold access and riches. Now, we hear about the Clinton Foundation all the time. It's it's sort of, uh, you know, beaten into our minds that the Clinton Foundation is a fraudulent organization. Uh, that's what the right says. And the left says it's nothing more than a uh, than a foundation to help people who are in need. What do you believe the Clinton Foundation is and why do you believe it has sort of taken on this uh, ominous uh, sort of, uh, you know, sort of reality? Well, uh, I think you really have to go back 
to uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, and uh, how shocked people were uh, when he went over and took like a $10 million fee from the wife of the Reverend Moon, uh, who had longstanding ties to the Korean CIA. Uh, historically, right, presidents uh, were supposed to go back to small towns in Kansas or or Missouri or mm-hmm. back to a ranch. Uh, and really, uh, you know, the uh, with George Herbert Walker Bush taking that kind of huge fee, uh, and then that was followed by the, you know, they were supposed to make their money off, you know, one book deal mm-hmm. uh, for for memoirs. Uh, but in the case of the Clintons, I think it's, uh, you know, they went from openly saying we have no money to, you know, $110 million in wealth. Uh, I think the foundation serves uh, many uh, purposes. One, of course, we refer to as Al Capone's soup kitchen. Mm. On the one level, right, it's going to do certain things that uh, we all applaud, like, you know, dealing with health care in the third world or, you know, trying to purify water in areas where uh, – uh, people are getting uh, sick and children are going uh, hungry. Uh, on the other hand, it, it's really sort of a uh, political slush fund mm-hmm. when you have that much money. It, it allows you to travel around and do a variety of things um, under the guise of a foundation and uh, nonprofit mm-hmm. rubric, while in reality you're advancing your political career Mm-hmm. or your family's fortunes. So what do you actually think is so wrong with something like the Clinton Foundation when it comes to um, their access? Uh, does I mean, d- does the Clinton Foundation simply give large donors access to that power? Does that necessarily mean that those people who have donated money that, that now have access to that power are going to get all of their wishes granted? You know, is it is it really that all-powerful being that some people make it out to be? Well, it appears uh, for the House of Saud it is. I mean, if you, I mean, part of the problem here is uh, is that uh, Ms. Clinton was using this as a political slush fund, so to speak, uh, and of course doing uh, good things. Uh, and at the same time, there seems to be no standards, right? Uh, you're not cutting off mm-hmm. bad, evil, sexist dictators from the third world or evil sorts from Azerbaijani, it's sort of one-stop shopping. If you want access, uh, you know, and she's Secretary of the State when many of these deals are going down. Uh, But this shouldn't surprise us. Remember the reports uh, of the Clintons inviting in uh, uh, the Chinese people from the People's Republic of China uh, into the National uh, Security Council. So there's been, uh, and you may recall in 2000, questions that were raised both uh, in George W. Bush's campaign uh, with the uh, uh, Nippon Kiritsu tied to the Japanese that his father was close to, uh, as well as the Lippon Kiritsu. I mean, there were actually talks about Buddhist monks laundering money. I'm one of the people that think that was a real possibility. Hmm. You're dealing here with great global uh, issues, uh, and you've got people that have been able to use their former political positions, and perhaps in the case of Hillary, your current position, uh, to get people to think You hmm. know uh, that there's a possibility of getting favors done on behalf of families, oligarchs, uh, their country, 
uh, in exchange uh, for large donations. Mm-hmm. Marcus, uh, I think it's no different than our whole system, right? That uh, right. Um, remember when uh, wasn't it Alfonso Mato, whose uh, defense as a senator was, you know, he wouldn't see anyone unless they were on the major donor list. The big mistake is when his chief of staff kind of uh, said that to somebody. But his defense was, I'm doing exactly what everyone else in Washington does. Right, right. Marcus, you have a question. Well, you mentioned uh, the House of Saud earlier. How far back does the influence of that family go in the Oval Office? Not just Republicans or Democrats, but just the Oval Office and the Office of the Presidency in general. Well, and I, I think, you know, really uh, with the uh, Aramco, uh, after World War II, when you're sitting on the world's largest oil deposit, uh, I think a variety of deals, uh, you know, were made dating back to post-World War II uh, there in the 1940s that uh, uh, allows them to uh, have uh, certain exceptions in terms of funding uh, extremist groups and uh, terrorist groups. Mm-hmm. And some, of course, they funded and traded with us, the Mahashuddin in Afghanistan, as well as al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. What is, so how does that tie into this idea of, uh, of election theft? And how does that tie into this idea of the illusion of choice? And uh, are, are the people that are in power are going to be in power, and we as a people are no longer living in a democracy? How does that play into the larger narrative? Well, you know, on, on a basic level, you know, we've always pretty much allowed uh, a two-party system uh, to exist one more than a dictatorship. Now, we, we've always we've always had a truncated system uh, where uh, many of the states uh, and the laws and the decisions of the courts, including the Supreme Court, have not tried to foster a marketplace of idea. You know, we've uh, you know we would brag that we have this greatest democracy in the world, but really it was a two-party system that you know one more than a dictatorship. Uh, and usually rated, you know, out of the 50 longstanding democracies, we'd come out 44th or 49th in terms of those rubrics. Mm. I saw that Harvard and the University of Australia just rated as 27th out of 27th. So we've never really had uh, a tremendous uh, diversity and marketplace of ideas that would be uh, reflective of a robust uh, democracy, you know, we've pretty much 90% of our congressional districts, you know, are rigged for the incumbent right. under the notion that a uh, an injury to one incumbent is an injury to all. Mm. Usually, if you can eliminate a seat, it might be an outlier like Dennis Kucinich, who doesn't go along with the program or votes for Clinton's impeachment. So we've got one of the most non-competitive uh, congressional branches mm. in the world. And you would say that's due that that's due to gerrymandering and redistricting and things like that, correct? Oh, ab- ab- absolutely, and almost by a consensus agreement of both party incumbents, is that how that's supposed to work? Mm-hmm. So, what would it look like? I mean, Marcus, we have a country of three hundred and twenty million people, roughly fifty states, many of them larger than uh, nations. You know, certain nations. Do you think, uh, Doctor, that there is? Um, a reason behind the two-party system that it lends itself to a 
stability to some degree? Is there is there anything to be said about the idea that more options will destabilize the American people who don't want to pay attention to politics in the first place? I mean, we have Labor Day coming up, and the common theory is that people don't start pay, paying attention to a general election until after that day. So is there is there a stabilizing effect? Yeah, no, it's clear the framers of the Constitution, and particularly uh, uh, Madison, uh, Again, who uh, uh, you know feared the quote tyranny uh, of the majority, uh, uh, those democratic impulses uh, clearly designed a system uh, where uh, quote ambition would be made to check ambition, uh, where you design it for a stalemate. So whenever we get these stalemates and people complain, uh, I think we have to look to the very structure. Uh, of the system itself mm-hmm. uh, that that made it possible for uh, a minority, say, in the Senate, 41 senators to essentially block all action in the country if if they're unified. And, and well, you're yeah, discussing what I, Ted I Cruz that, did uh, recently uh, when he when he halted sure. the government, things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's designed for that. Uh, so. Again, with democracy, you get more instability. So on the one hand, while we really talked about a democracy, you know, our structure is that of a republic. Uh, I mean, think, think about the original, uh, I mean, uh, four uh, major institution and three branches, right? Only one of them was uh, democratically elected, only the mm-hmm. House of Representatives and two, the presidency and the Supreme Court uh, still aren't. So there wasn't a huge impulse towards grassroots uh, democracy. No, and I was going to say now with all the gerrymandering uh, and things like that within Congress, it sort of has done away with the idea that we are voting in people in competitive races, right? No, absolutely, right? There's going to be uh, about you know 40 or so races perhaps a little more uh, because of the volatile nature of uh, two unpopular candidates. And anytime you've got the two most unpopular candidates uh, on record running against each other, there may be more volatility down ticket. Mm. But uh, really, what we're talking about 40 seats in play uh, or so. So And, And often, if it was a normal year, we'd be down to 12 or 15 by the end. Right. So I know I know you attended the Green Party uh, convention and, and I know you know a lot about the Libertarian Party. How would uh, how would America look in 2020 if somebody like Jill Stein or Gary Johnson does end up getting five percent of the vote? Theoretically, then they have matched federal fundings. What do you think America would look like if we did have a viable third party option? Well, uh, I, I think you would not get a uh, crony capitalist status quo, uh, which right uh, in recent times, uh, regardless of which party has been in there, uh, tends to be neoconservative on, uh, on its foreign policy. Uh, if you're in 181 estimated nations out of 203 on planet Earth, you really got to question yourself. I mean, the, uh, the military even uh, uh, questions uh, that I think one of the key things that is going to be raised by the libertarian, it was raised, of course, when, by Ron Paul when he ran as a libertarian. And it's, um, I think, the most important issue raised when uh, 
again, Jill Stein uh, had her town hall meeting there on CNN. Uh, the fact that if we have 900 military bases, we're not counting outposts and strange rotation that uh, means it's not really a base. If we've got 900 and the rest of the world combined has 30, you've got to question uh, the course of the military-industrial complex. You've got mm-hmm. to go back, I think, and re-examine the words of, of Eisenhower and wonder whether this uh, is essential uh, to our protection and security. And I also think people need to look at a map. And you know, when I look at a map of the U.S., I see an ocean on either side and two friendly nations uh, on the north or south, uh, one that uh, wants to invade us with undocumented workers to some extent, but they want to come here you know, not to attack us, right. uh, but to be part of our economy. Do you think that the American public is too far gone for a three-party system? Are we too entrenched and uh, ultimately too informed uh, to bring a third party in, a viable third party in? Well, uh, I think over since World War II, you know, the fact that right after World War II, essentially 80% of everything made on planet Earth was you know, made in the United States. Remember the city in uh, Japan that changed its name to USA? So it could stamp that. Uh, I mm. think you're seeing the dying remnants of that. I mean, now that if you're, you know, 18, 19, $20 trillion in debt, you're running perpetual uh, trade imbalances, uh, and you had the second largest meltdown of the 20th century in the Great Recession, you know, where trillions of dollars of wealth were lost uh, within a few months. Uh, I think you're seeing uh, the resistance in the form of economic nationalism with Trump, as well with uh, Jill Stein Mm -hmm. in uh, decentralizing the economy uh, with the Green New Deal. And I think you're seeing new ideas, and not really new ideas, they've been fairly consistent um, ideas uh, with a smaller government uh, approach. Uh, to the economy coming out of the libertarians as well. Can you go into a little bit of the history of how we got here? It seems like more and more we have less options than ever before, not just one or two people. It's it's not just the fact that it's a, a limited, finite group of people. It seems to be coming from a smaller and smaller and smaller pool uh, each election year. You know, now we're going through another Bush. We had a Bush cycle. We had a, uh, you know, uh, Clinton, uh, Bush, Obama. And now we have another Clinton cycle uh, possibly coming up. Um, when did all that start? And does that play into election theft? And if you could get into a little bit of the voting machines and the companies that own those voting machines that are private entities that uh, donate money to campaigns and get into a little bit about the, the dangers of having private companies creating voting machines in a democracy. Yeah, uh, right before me is the Columbus Dispatch, my hometown daily monopoly. At the top of it says, FBI warns of election hacking. And in this case, uh, they're referring to the Russians accessing uh, databases in Illinois uh, and in Arizona. Uh, But uh, what they're not talking about and what is sort of the third rail of political reporting is that, yeah, it's a problem. You know, if we look at the Chinese and the Russians, and their ability to uh, hack U.S. computer systems. But much, much easier 
is the partisan for-profit corporations who use secret proprietary software mm-hmm. who all they don't, they don't have to hack. All they have to do is show up with a uh, ID card around their neck saying ES and S, and they can walk into any precinct or a county board of election or registrar's office and often go on the uh, computers during an election uh, and type mm-hmm. in whatever they want. Uh, remember that in 2004 here in Ohio, and we were able to prove this in a, a lawsuit, lawsuit King Lincoln Brunsville uh, versus Blackwell, uh, they sent the IT guy for the state of Ohio home at 9 o'clock in 2004, and private contractors as well as professors from a uh, Cedarville University, a born-again Christian school, hmm. essentially ran the election through private contracts, and the final vote count that came back to us after supposedly the supercomputers of Ohio uh, failed uh, were from a mere oversight in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Right. So let's get into that for a second. So this is 2004. This was this was W running against John Kerry. Ohio was a key state. Uh, Carl Rove. Now, you have said before that you believe Carl Rove stole the election in Ohio. And so just go into a little bit more detail. They went in. They, they, they said the voting machines had some problem, so they had to send them down to Tennessee. And previous, before they got to Tennessee, the vote was uh, in favor of Kerry, theoretically. And then when they came back from Tennessee, they had flipped the vote. And this is something that you talk about regularly, is this flipping of the vote. How does something like that actually work? Well, usually all you need is one keystroke. Uh, if people go online and look uh, uh, for a Republican Steve Spoonamore, who's really one of the leading computer security uh, experts in America, uh, he predicted early on it was a man in the middle of attack. Uh, I mean, all you need, all you, in this case, you sent the votes from Ohio central tabulators at the county boards of elections to the old Pioneer Bank building in Chattanooga, Tennessee, mm-hmm. to a company called Smart Tech, run by Jeff Averbeck, a, a, a man who born again, right-wing Christian, who used to run a evangelical publishing house. Mm. It's real interesting how the Right to Life movement got heavily involved uh, in IT involving uh, elections. Yeah. And the apparatus in Ohio was uh, was put together, uh, again, by Michael Connell, also a key player in the Right to Life movement in Ohio who designed uh, this system. Mm-hmm. And he also, of course, uh, I mean, what Averbeck ran was a server farm. Uh, if you look Swift voters, you know, for truth, uh, they were on the same server farm as uh, the Ohio government. It was relatively easy to do. You simply have two hats. Uh, one hat uh, you call new media. New media, you know, runs the Republican National Committee uh, websites in 04. It runs uh, uh, GWB, uh, George W. Bush, uh, 43 from the White House that Carl Rove used. It all goes down to the same site. Then you create another company. I mean, this stuff wasn't hard to figure out. I mean, they had contempt in some way for organized crime and election rigging. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one was simply uh, GovTech, GovTech, which was 
supposedly owned by Mike, uh, Michael Connell's wife, but she didn't really know that she owned it, and she didn't really know that much about uh, IT. And who is Michael Connell? So, uh, Michael Connell uh, originally started out in the 80s and came to notice in 1988. He's the guy who did the IT work for George Herbert Walker Bush, the former CIA director and president. And he really got to start counting delegates at the 88 uh, convention. Mm. Uh, and uh, he went on to be, uh, he was known as the master of the interface, where he could make different computer systems talk to each other and uh, uh, communicate and transmit uh, information. Mm. He, uh, we, we've got the architectural map. You can find it at the freepress.org. In the court case, we finally won the right uh, to look at the contract which was signed a year in advance, which essentially privatized the entire Ohio vote, which is really a stroke of genius by Rove. I mean, Rove pretty much knew as 2000, you know, came down to Florida, 2004, likely to come down to Ohio, just like this year where we're looking at Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, and Florida. Mm -hmm. The undemocratic nature of our system means that most states are either red or blue, and it really comes down to a handful of purple states, of which the ones with large electoral votes uh, are the key. Well, can you talk? Well, I want to ask this question first. Uh, when we talk about uh, voter fraud, again, like I said earlier, it's different than election theft. We talk about voter ID laws. We talk about people, uh, you know, going in and, and voting more than one time. Do you feel like those issues, which are the ones most publicized, those are more smokescreen issues to a de uh, to uh, detract from what's actually happening with the voting machines? And second of all, as a follow up with Pennsylvania, with Florida, Ohio, uh, once again being very important, what should we look out? for in this election cycle to see uh, if we can um, if we if we can sort of uncover a little bit of this voter fraud in real time as opposed to talking about these things in hindsight well the key to uncovering uh, election fraud as opposed to voter fraud uh, is of course the exit polls I mean that's the uh, international gold standard and I speak as a international election observer uh, uh, I uh, co-wrote the U.N. report uh, from El Salvador back uh, in 1995, following the uh, bloody civil war there, uh, and I edited that report and delivered it to the United Nations. Um, uh, you know, and what uh, did you find you in know, that report? Well, I, I found that there was a small amount. It's harder to commit. Uh, voter fraud right at the retail level mm. and it's easier to observe but if if i was down there and say the arena party the right-wing party said friends of ours are going to come in and secretly count the vote with secret software you can't see it would have been an easy report for me i would have simply wrote presumption of fraud a bias politically connected company is secretly counting the vote non-transparency mm -hmm. same thing with the fmln right the gorillas if some Maoist group or marxist group came in who had just formed an it uh company and said we're going to count this vote secretly non-transparently and you can't look at our source code you would presume fraud right, right. that happens in every election in the united states and the only way to catch it is the exit polls 
which uh, have come under uh, attack in the U.S. because mm. if done right, they're the only thing that stands in the way of stealing elections mm. with a computer uh, keystroke. So uh, when when you look at that uh, and and think about it, it makes little sense, right? We don't meet minimum standards of transparency. Well, whose responsibility? Whose responsibility is it to catch voter fraud um, or election theft? Or, or election fraud, theft? Voter, election fraud. Well, unfortunately, in the United States, right, we don't have a national system. Uh, yeah, that's in place. You've got fifty different states. It really depends on the partisanship and the quality of the people you're electing there, right? right. I mean, uh, more important to anyone uh, to get Bush elected uh, in 2000 with Catherine Harris as Secretary of State, right? She's the one that brought in the choice point data system and essentially eliminated about 94,000 supposed felons that weren't really felons. Mm -hmm. And those felons were likely to vote 80% uh, for Gore. Here, J. Kenneth Blackwell as Secretary of State in 2004, and like Catherine here is the co-chair of the Bush-Cheney uh, election committee, this time the re-election committee, is that uh, when you have direct partisans, you know, who negotiated this secret deal to allow private contractors uh, right from the right life community to count the votes mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to nonpartisan uh, officials, uh, you're going to have problems. Totally. Our system is designed to be gamed on virtually every level. It's non-transparent. Well, and until the rise of the, you know, the uh, Russian hackers, uh, people have not been paying attention. Uh, even though finally they, they ran an op-ed in the New York Times, uh, you know, from a computer uh, science professor saying, "Yeah, our election." You know, it is very easy to hack. Well, now, and, we and you're, old computers and we use the internet. Now, there's sort of a term for this, and it was it used to apply mostly to Republicans. And I believe that you mentioned it uh, in a previous interview. The red shift, it's called. And could you explain that a little bit and how it's um, sort of changed now with Hillary being um, the more powerful entity in this election and certainly the more established um, person in the election. She's she's known these people for years and worked with them. Can you explain what the red shift is and how um, Hillary is using a similar tactic in this cycle? Yeah, really. Uh, and, and it was really unfair to call it the red shift uh, per se. It was more of a Karl Rove uh, Bush family shift. So you've got the former head of the CIA who's elected president, uh, and that's when we first began to see a uh, divergence between the exit polls, how people said they voted, you know, going back to 1988 in uh, New Hampshire, particularly in Manchester, where John Sununu, who later became chief mm-hmm. of staff, George Herbert Walker Bush, brought in these Danaher voting machines, these computer, you know, push and pray machines that are absolutely non-transparent. Uh, and later with his son. So now you've got a former CIA director, which by gentleman's agreement, those people, I believe, weren't supposed to run uh, for the presidency in the United States. Why should the people that keep all the secrets 
and uh, in the name of our national defense and national security, rig elections in the third world. And they have a term for it called benign operations because they're not bloody coups. Right. So the when you put the election riggers, uh, uh, you know, in the election cycle, you're going to alter it. So this red shift, which was really a bush shift uh, more than family shift, uh, now it appears to have picked up uh, picked up the other major name brand in the country, right? the Clinton family. So a obvious deviation between how people say they are voting and exit polls and how the actual vote is being counted emerged in this year's primary, uh, and all of it appeared uh, in the direction of favoring Hillary Clinton. And what primary uh, state? What, what primary state do you think that was shown the most? I mean, we talked about Nevada. Uh, we talked about Arizona. Arizona uh, more than any other state. The you know Arizona was a coup d'état. It was not an election. Uh, California, in terms. Not so much of the uh, vote uh, shifting, but the stripping uh, of voters, Sanders voters. Mm -hmm. Somebody was targeting them with uh, precision to make sure uh, life uh, would not be easy on Election Day if somebody wanted to vote and they were a new Sanders voter. Somebody uh, appears, and I I suspect it was nothing more than the DNC and their allies – that was supporting Clinton in uh, California. Uh, you would call the AP uh, suddenly to do simple math again and uh, said the election was already over uh, after they recounted. You have mm-hmm. to wonder why they counted wrong uh, in the first place. Also, the uh, uh, Edison Research, who I have sued, I have a lawsuit against trying to get their raw data, uh, announced that they wouldn't conduct a uh, the exit polls in California uh, to detect to see if there was any uh, voter fraud. So in this election cycle, it's clear that whoever has that ability in those large companies like ES&S and uh, Dominion uh, and uh, SOE and CITL, uh, which has a very shaky provenance, including interlocking directorships with a CIA nonprofit, who's Alan Hamilton, uh, and other countries uh, and, and companies, uh, they, they actually come out of Barcelona, Spain. Yeah. You know, we we uh, broke that story in 2012 at the uh, org. You wonder why would an overseas company uh, be counting the American uh, abroad vote and the American military vote and mm-hmm. in 36 states be allowed to uh, plug in directly to central tabulators, uh, which can corrupt the whole system. Yeah, that does seem so when, really, it, it does seem to derail the whole point of a primary. And theoretically, we think of these things as localized elections, which uh, tend to lead us to believe they'll be more accurate to the to the vote as opposed to a general. Well, but Marcus, you have a question. Yeah, well, uh, these, we always, there's always recounts. There's always what they say, wrong votes. And it seems to me a lot of times when a recount happens, it seems to be the but the establishment candidate who comes out on top, if you have a, if you hear the word recount, does your radar immediately go off? Well, because many of these aren't really uh, recounts in any traditional sense. Uh, Kerry, for example, the recount in Ohio, which was, by the way, paid for by the Libertarians and Green Parties, not by John Kerry, 
who had $7 million in the bank and an army uh, of lawyers that uh, walked away. You know, 240,000 votes were uncounted uh, when uh, Kerry lost by 118,000 votes, and many of those were in the inner city. So mm-hmm. uh, I think he was thinking about running for president again and that he didn't want to be the sore loser man of uh, of 2000 mm-hmm. core fame, right? So right. Uh, I was having a phone call with him and Jesse Jackson, uh, and Jesse Jackson made it real clear, right? If you don't stand up for these disenfranchised voters today, you can't expect we're going to stand up for you in 2008. Right. So I thought it was a very clear message. Yeah. But, uh, Clary was unwilling uh, uh, to fight. Uh, and uh, the 3% of the vote that was counted uh, on election night, uh, Bush is winning by close to 139 thousand votes. So if you actually count the three percent, it had dropped to one hundred and eighteen thousand votes after, you know, checking all the votes through the certification process and doing uh, a three percent audit. Uh, in many uh, for example in Coshocton County, Ohio, a small county, but Kerry actually picked up about six percent once you hand counted, you know, looked at the uh, uh, scanned ballots in that county. Mm-hmm. So had they counted all 97% of the remaining votes and the uh, uh, ultimately 90,000 votes to this day that have never been counted in Scantron machines that were improperly calibrated mm. uh, by these private uh, companies, Kerry probably uh, would have won. So I mean, that's what... The, when we think about uh, purged groups, we often think of uh, we think of minority groups, blacks and Latinos. Now, those groups in this election are very pro Hillary, and uh, theoretically, again, Hillary is the one who is the establishment choice. Certainly, it's not Donald Trump, and I don't think it's Jill Stein or Gary either. Um, do you think what group in America in 2016's election do you feel is most likely to be purged? Is it the 4 million new Trump voters? Or is it, I mean, what group do you think is going to be the one that the establishment wants to keep away from the polls in this election cycle? Because it does seem as if we have sort of a switched uh, reality right now. Well, I think if you want to, you know, support the status quo, and the very uh, wealthy and powerful people often with access to these private companies, uh, I think you're going to want the Trump, uh, you know, uh, the Trump voters, right? You're going to, you're going to want to target those Trump voters. Uh, many of them are uh, perceived to be more ideologically extreme or more nationalistic. Uh, and it's fairly easy uh, to see, you know, who they voted for in the primary, that's public record, uh, and when they registered the vote. Uh, and it, it was written in many places that people who hadn't been voting for years suddenly uh, registered and voted uh, for Trump. So they're a fairly easy demographic to target mm-hmm. for vote stripping, right? Uh, and the reason you strip the votes, because that's what allows you to flip the votes, right? You can't Flip massive amounts of votes. So you've got to be mm-hmm. able to go after and disenfranchise the other people's base. I mean, that's what Hillary Clinton was able to do with the Sanders people. 
is make it very easy for 20-something, uh, very difficult, I mean, for 20-something college students to vote in places like Bowling Green, Ohio, or down in Athens, uh, Ohio, where Ohio University is, and out in California in places like, you know, the Bay Area, uh, et cetera, and in Marin County and Humboldt uh, County. It was fairly predictable uh, using, uh, you know, the uh, software, uh, the minivan provided by the DNC that kept track of who these new voters are and what their preferences are. Mm-hmm. Once you have access to that, you know exactly who uh, to eliminate in a computer glitch. Uh, remember, Debolt did this in 2004 in Cleveland, a couple weeks before the election. 10,000 uh, voters in Cleveland, overwhelmingly black voters, are glitched, accidentally yeah. removed from the voting rolls. So it's a fairly e- easy game. That's why we talk about the stripping and flipping selection of 2016. Yeah. It wanna... starts with targeting your opponent's right. base, and you're absolutely right. I think you'll see, uh, particularly in Democratic states, virtually no purging of minority voters uh, and poor voters uh, in urban areas. Uh, but I think the uh, the Trump base will be targeted. So, um, you know, we talk a little, we do a podcast called Last Podcast on the Left as well. It's a little bit more uh, paranormal, and we get into some um, some conspiracy theories and things like that. Sometimes we talk about a guy named Alex Jones or David Icke. Um, but the one thing about someone like a David Icke type, they they discuss the illusion of choice and how there really is no difference uh, between the political parties. They're they're held up by the exact same puppeteers, these these large yeah. corporations. Um, what do you feel? It, it, as far as we have in the election right now, do you do you really think there are two? opposite choices or do you believe that these that there is uh it, it, it is it's all theater and uh, there really is no uh there, there there's no trust to be had with either of the parties well i think uh, donald trump represents uh, you know uh, essentially took out the uh, republican parties with a born-again christian base he brought in a variety of economic uh populists uh, and nationalist uh, that right. is destabilizing uh, the system. Right. Well, I guess what I'm asking so is, makes- we we have someone like Hillary Clinton who is theoretically a Democrat, the the Dove Party, the the Party of Peace. This is what this is what we were led to believe as as children. Well, if we if if we ignore her record and her commercials, I mean, I she's a neocon. Right. I mean, she's massively hawkish, and she's serving the interest. Uh, of the same sort of corporate capitalist elites and the oligarchs as as the Republican Party did on George W. Bush. So what do we do then? I mean, you speak with young people all the time. We have a very active Facebook group, and there are a lot of people who, um, you know, they they have to vote for Hillary. I mean, uh, they they don't deem Trump a a reasonable option, and that's a very reasonable uh, thought because he's, you know, you never know when he's going to blow up the world. Um, but what do we do then? I mean, we have someone like Hillary. Everyone who is supporting her, supporting her, and I've said this many times, Katy Perry's of the world, they're voting for a person who voted for the Iraq War, nation building, the 1033 program that led to the militarization of police. Where do we go from here? I mean, how do we find, how do we find an actual option? Well, you know, unless we build, uh, and the beauty of Jill Stein and Gary Johnson 
unless we're party building using the enthusiasm, uh, which should be at a uh, record high for those two parties and very seldom happens in the possibility of a 5% solution and matching funds, unless we build the local party infrastructure uh, and start to take over county commission. Uh, For example, uh, I'm running for Franklin County prosecutor on the Green Party uh, because I have an issue. I'd like to see our police um, trained uh, and uh, be in tune with our own constitution. Mm -hmm. I'd also like Mm -hmm. to see uh, the U.S. Constitution. You know, part of what I've pledged to do is arrest anyone in the NSA or working for any government agencies that are violating the Fourth Amendment Mm -hmm. and to make sure that our police are actually controlled here at the local level and not working for secret national agencies. I mean, I think those are the type of debate. Uh, But, you know, I mean, there's a variety of these local offices. Uh, If people were running in these college towns, either as libertarians uh, and or, uh, again, Greens, Mm -hmm. uh, it would have been really easy. uh, And maybe uh, with these elections, we can start ahead of time. But they could have took over a variety of city councils. In in uh, back in the 1970s, when I worked for the Human Rights Party uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right, we brought in the first marijuana decriminalization, mm. uh, five dollar fee, non criminal if you had an ounce or less on you. Mm-hmm. I mean, we did that and passed that in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where we controlled the city council. Yeah, that's, and, and, I, and I want to thank I want to thank you for that. I've been uh, really benefiting from all those uh, grassroots activists <laughs> when it comes to legalizing marijuana. So thank you. Well, it does. There. It does seem that uh, it actually seems that Bernie Sanders has been uh, inspiring a lot of people to work on the local level. I've seen a lot of stuff uh, around the internet on Facebook, mm-hmm. on Reddit, uh, where people are actually talking about and actually running for these offices. Do you think that Bernie's kind of kick-started more of a bottom-up um, system? Yeah, no, I, I hope so. I mean, the, mm-hmm. it'd be uh, interesting to have an actual ideological debate like uh, Western Europe between social democrats, democratic socialists, uh, and libertarian, uh, and particularly you know, on some of these economic issues. So uh, a lot of the people in the Jill Stein campaign, uh, here's some Ohio numbers. You know, uh, basically uh, we we have, a, you know, a half dozen green people that are real activists in Ohio. The Sanders volunteer list that is a uh, volunteer for Jill Stein uh, just came in, a little under 10,000 wow. people. From the I mean, I mean, really, uh, thankfully, they dwarf uh, the Green Party. And these people are hardcore social media uh, bloggers. Uh, You know, they're they're like, where are the headquarters? Where do we make the calls? And it's like, yeah, we we don't quite have those yet. Right? It does seem like we're we're, we're these ideological greens, many of us uh, older. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, the party really belongs to them, and I'm glad, uh, you know, I hope they take it uh, and run with it. I've I've put in my time. I know social media has, you know, it's brought out a lot of negativity, but it's also brought a lot of positivity, and it's brought a lot of groups of people who felt polarized and uh, and and disenfranchised in their local communities together to create a really a, a collective 
uh, group of, of, of creative thinkers and, uh, and creative uh, political minds. Just, I know you have to get out of here, but just very quickly, one of the questions that is often asked about people who support Gary Johnson or Jill Stein, specifically Gary Johnson, though, when it comes to his libertarian policies, uh, economic-wise, people will point out that he wants uh, businesses to do whatever they want to do. And um, what, do you, what would a response be from your perspective uh, regarding the libertarians and economics and how it plays into, theoretically, if the government is less involved um, with corporations, they would be able to create more voting machine fraud? Or is it so intertwined with corporations and government that uh, it's really sort of a moot point at this, uh, at this time? Well, you know the the Libertarian Party, uh, you know, has has not been pro massive corporations. Uh, you know, they've uh, they've wanted. You know, I mean, they they love Adam Smith. They they love uh, a marketplace uh, that's steeped in in local morality and uh, believes that the market will take care of yourself. And if you're out there with non-transparent machines, you're not going to survive. Yeah, you're going to go the way of Debolt, right? People are going to know that you're engaged in worldwide fraud. So uh, I don't see uh, uh, their options. Uh, you know, they're they're not they don't believe in monopolies. They're not going to allow you know a, com- a company like ES&S to count eighty percent of the vote in one mm-hmm. form or not. And uh, you know, so they they don't uh, fe- uh, make me afraid. What makes me afraid is the existing system where a handful of non-transparent machines, uh, and again, uh, the libertarians I've talked to, you know, uh, feel they've been so discriminated against by the major parties. They're for full transparency. They've been knocked off the ballots here in Ohio, uh, you know, with, with laws that are clearly unconstitutional, and uh, they were for the recount right. with the Greens. They're for full transparency. They're not the problem. The two major problems, particularly in this last cycle, of uh, the supporters of Hillary Clinton for engaging in tactics uh, to target uh, the Sanders voters, who I believe won uh, the primary. And so that's why you believe we talked about this on the on the lost episode. But that's why you believe this nation is not a democracy. It's a kleptocracy. Uh, absolutely. I, I believe that uh, it went from being crony capitalism to, you know, steal what you can and uh, make sure you have allies that are too big to jail that can protect you. Mm. Oh, my. Uh, thank you so much for being with us, doctor. All right. Glad to do it. Um, all right. We'll talk to you uh, very soon, I hope. And and, right. and good uh, luck with the election. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. I thought it was a fascinating interview. Yeah, man. That dude is smart as fuck. He's a smart guy, and you can almost smell the coffee on his breath. <laughs> I mean, he is a uh, he's a college professor, and uh, man, those are some lucky kids to have uh, in the, to be in that class with him. Yeah. I'll never forget my favorite college professor. I absolutely hated him. His name was Stephen Red. Yeah, and he was a Mormon, and he taught and. I mean, really Mormon. Yeah. Uh, and he taught us the politics of nuclear weapons. And it was fascinating. And I hated him so much, I finally passed his class uh, after my second attempt. Um, well, I got a C the first time and an A the second time. Because if you get a C the second time, you are a dummy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it seems like, you know, there are some good college professors out there who are really doing um, good 
intelligent work that is not not as partisan as uh, you know as 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 uh, many people can be. Yeah, actually, my favorite uh, political science professor in college as well. He was a Republican, uh, hard yeah. hardcore Arkansas. So was red, yeah, hardcore Arkansas Republican. I was. I mean, this is during the Bush years, uh, during the first the uh, the first George W. Bush uh, ele- the first George W. Bush presidency. So man, I was hardcore left wing. Oh, we used to fight constantly, but oh. those are the fun people to fight with. Yeah, totally. You know? But this guy, uh, I don't know. He, he was very important to me because he definitely showed that you can dis. He he showed me how to disagree, mm-hmm. uh, and that's I think in in politics uh, when you talk about politics, that is one of the most important skills to have is how to disagree in a rational manner. Totally, and you know, and and that's what's so great about this show. I mean, a lot of people, um, you know, Marcus and I, we we actually, you know. People talk about this show I've seen on the on the Facebook group. Sometimes it's getting a little bit more heated, but that that makes sense. We're yeah. about three months out from the election now, or 70 days, I believe, maybe even uh, 69 days. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> um, and so people will become a little bit more entrenched in their positions, and that's yeah. totally fine. That's totally normal. Um, when it comes to our show, you know, what we want to do here, what Marcus and I do is uh, – we, we we don't necessarily pick sides we don't believe in right. but you know I we're very uh we're trying to express both sides and I have taken the burden of oftentimes having to trump explain um <laughs> and uh, but I don't mind that because there's a lot of there are a lot of reasons behind you know the people that love there's a reason that people love you know certain individuals and so we just try to explain why they do to the best ability to the best of our abilities um so thank you so much for listening to the interview thank you guys so much for all your encouragement regarding my new bicycle mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they said I'm not going to break it, but they don't. Uh, that exercise bike is as good as dead. It's going to be. A uh, you know what I'll say, Ben? I'm, ro- I'm rooting for you. Thank you, buddy. I, Against I, the bike. I'm feeling good. My shoulders are strong. <laughs> I feel like that. I feel like a big old monster. <laughs> it's going to be good. Um, so find Marcus Parks on Twitter at Marcus Parks and on Instagram at Marcus Parks. I'm on Twitter at Ben Kissel. Instagram Ben Kissel one. But I'm still I just. I don't know how to use the thing. I don't know. I, I'm more of a writer than a picture yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I like every picture I take. I hate so I don't. Uh, I don't really post too much on there. Um, and then go join. So find me on Twitter, and you know, I try to respond to as many people as I as I possibly can. And uh, go to the Abelians Top Hat Facebook group. Join the conversation. Uh, you know, be polite. I understand. Again, like we just said, yeah. you know, tensions. Uh, you know, things boil over, especially in politics. But as far as politics go. That page is about as peaceful as uh, we can possibly ask for. It actually really is. Now, remember, folks, rational disagreement. That's what yep. we, we're, especially now during the lead up to an election after Labor Day, uh, it is needed that it's needed more than than at any other time. Totally. And if you are like Dr. Fitrakis mentioned, um, if you do want to change uh, the way that our government works, Start at the local level. You know, yeah. Marcus and I have talked about possibly running for city council or, uh, you know, Congress or things like that. Um, and uh, so start at the local level and, and we can really make some actual change, you yeah. know. And it was very exciting when he mentioned that the Bernie people coming over to support Jill Stein, uh, you know, what was it, 10,000? Previously, he mentioned, I'm not sure if you guys caught that, there was six Green Party members in Ohio mm-hmm. and now there's over 10,000. Um, so there's a lot of really wonderful activist grassroots activity happening. And uh, that's one of the benefits of social media, and it's it's really cool. So get involved in your local governments, and uh, you know we'll try to help you out as much as we can here on the show. Even if we disagree with some of your policies, we'll still try to exp- uh, you know talk about them. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, 
you know, if, if they come from the goodness of your heart, they can't be that bad. <laughs> That's what I always say. Yeah, as long as it comes from a place of love, and not hate, then I'm 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 definitely down for uh, for discussing it. And even if it, it does come from a place of hate. I'll be down to discuss that, too. Yeah, why not? As long as you don't direct the hate directly towards the person that's disagreeing with you. Yeah, speak more than, yeah, just be like, people are saying, you know, <laughs> do like stuff like that. Um, all right, everyone, thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.